Welcome to Murder in the Black. Yes. I'm your host, Steph. And I'm MD. And y'all, it's the first episode. Are you excited, MD? Let's talk about this. Like, I, I mean, how long has it been? We've been talking like, about this TikTok. for forever. And TikTok, you guys are out there, like, hounding us. And we hear you. It's just been crazy. Really, it's me. We can blame me. It's my <laughs> well, life. Let's go ahead and play. It, let's go on. It's, you know, I, you know, as most of you know, I'm an attorney. And I started a new job, started at a new firm, and just trying to find, I hate to say balance because I don't believe in balance, but, like, just trying to find that <laughs> rhythm, right? Yeah. Like, what works. But anyway, we are here. We are excited. And we have a really good story today. Yeah, we do. And, you know, I did a bonus episode, so y'all can kind of, like, low-key kind of binge a little bit. And I, like, like to give our episodes, like, titles. You know, like, we're obviously going to put exactly who the crime is about as the headline. But, you know, what would you say, MD, is the title of this episode? I would say that the title of this episode should be The Sadistic Cleveland serial killer. Oh, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Because yeah. yeah. this guy, he's a little, mm. I would say evil. I think that that's yeah. the right word for him. Yeah. And, you know, I like, you know, in our community, in the Black community, I like to kind of like highlight what we say. And, you know, we often say, you know, when it comes to serial killers, it ain't us. <laughs> you know, we say that all the time. And, like, we for, do. Listen, and for our white, followers like because we know we have them and we love you guys or just if you just are not you know in our right non-black like we do in our in our culture we say if there's a serial killer on the loose we're like oh it's not they they not black you know it ain't ain't us is that us but that's not true it's not not. true and we we see that highlighted in particular in this case yes yes this case definitely takes that stereotype right on out. <laughs> it, it absolutely does. And I can't wait to share this this crazed story with yes. you guys. Yes. So let's get into this story time. Right. But first, grab your coffee if it's the morning or your wine if it's the evening. But either way, come on, Steph. Let's get into, let's get into it. Yes. So our case today is about... Anthony Soul, okay? And Anthony was born in Cleveland, Ohio on August 9th, 1959. Um, He was raised in East Cleveland, to be specific, and he was one out of seven children. So it was a lot of people. Yeah, and it was like, wasn't it like 13 people living in this house? Yes, like ultimately it was 13 because Soul's sister had her children in the house as well. So it was just a ton of people. Right. And he was raised by his mother and grandmother. So it was a single parent household. Like his dad wasn't present at all in the household. And um, Leona Davis, which is his niece, um, actually gave us some context to what was actually going on in the house. 
And there was a lot of abuse, physical abuse that was taking place um, by his mom, actually. Like, Soul's mother and his grandmother were actually quite abusive. Um, So when someone would do something wrong um, or, you know, do something they weren't supposed to do, they would literally have the kids stripped down naked and beat them with extension cords to the point where they would bleed, which is just, I mean, that's the epitome of abuse. Seriously, it really is. And I mean, there's a difference between I get a spanking because I, you know, and, you know, did something wrong as a kid and you strip me down naked in front of my other siblings and cousins and whip me with an extension cord. Like that's, I just don't understand how you even justify that. Right. I mean, there's no justification. I mean, just ever. That's just ridiculous. You just don't do that. But not only that, Soul's niece, uh, Leona Davis, claims that um, Soul began to actually rape her at the age of 10. Um, do we know how years old straight? Do we know how old um, Anthony was at the time he started doing this? No, I didn't get any information in my research about his age uh, when she was 10, but Mm-hmm. I would. I think that he was in his teenage years. Okay. Because I think, like, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe mm-hmm. he left the house when he was like 18, 19 years old. Right. So, if it he had to be around that time, right? Sometime in his teenage years. Right. And um. So and so he just had a like the foundation of his kind of origin story, if you want to say it was just completely abusive. He came from abuse. There was a lot taking place in that household. So in 1978, he actually joined the Marines because he wanted to get away from that environment, do something productive. And he actually was discharged from the Marines with honorably. So he did, he excelled in his career um, in the Marines at that time. So he, yeah, did a good I, job. Think, I think that my research showed that not only did he excel, but like he thrived on that structured environment that the military provides you, mm-hmm. um, you know, cause they're very regimented in the military and, you know, everything is, has to be in its place and in order and he excelled. And so it was, it was almost like he was made to be an, a Marine. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And, you know, that kind of leads us into what happened after the military what 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 did you find out md so you know while he thrived in the military and just thrived in that structure as soon as that was over it's like he slipped he went he spiraled into a depression and began to get on to get on drugs and alcohol and you know let me back up and say you know I said that he spiraled into depression I didn't find that you know he was diagnosed with depression Mm. and I think it is important that we watch our language when we talk about that because you know we use that really loosely um in in our world today people say oh I'm depressed absolutely I I think that like his characteristics show that there was something wrong you know Mm -hmm. um he you know couldn't keep a job and he you know was on alcohol and he was on drugs and he really just was went from being this like model military you know um person to being just the 
complete opposite of that. Yeah. And so, um, and it was at this time that he ran into a woman named Melvet. Mm-hmm. And so Melvet, he ran into outside of a hotel and um, she needed to, you know, she needed to use a phone. And I don't recall exactly why I was able to hear her testimony, um, not testimony, but like she told her story mm-hmm. um, on the oxygen uh, documentary uh, that they did on, on this story. And mm-hmm. she said that she needed to use the phone. She, she ran into him. He seemed nice. And I think that this is important to note because throughout this story, you guys are going to hear that she seen that he was very nice. He was very charming. He, he was the kind of guy that you put your, you know, all your alarm bells and every, all your doubts and worries, you put your guard down with him because he Mm. was not the kind of guy that made you think that, you know, oh my gosh, something's gonna, you know, happen. Something's gonna Mm -hmm. go wrong. He looked like a friendly guy. He did. He not only looked like it, but he also acted like it. He knew how to turn that charm on. Mm. And so she felt like, you know, okay, you know, I need to use a phone. And he said, oh, I have one back at my house. And apparently his house wasn't that far of a walk. And so she walked with him. Now, you know, I hear this and I'm like, never in a million years. I don't Mm. care how charming you are. Mm -hmm. Right. Like, I'm not walking with you back to your house at Mm -hmm. night, you know, because this was at night. Mm -hmm. And I think that's important for us to like get no matter how charming a person may seem. Yes. No matter how nice they may appear, mm-hmm. you know, because nobody has a um, a tattoo on their head saying "I'm a ser- serial killer." I, I will rape you, right? I rape people. <laughs> yes. So right. you know, you just have to you have to almost proceed with caution, like we tell our kids: mm-hmm. stranger danger, do not approach. Like, right. and and even if you do approach, you're not going to go with somewhere someone in the middle of the night back to their house. Absolutely. But I digress. Because it's, because no matter what, it's not her fault. What happened to her? Absolutely not. So she goes back to his house and they walk in. And as soon as they walk in, she says she immediately felt like something was wrong. Because it was just kind of like how he locked the doors behind her. And he pulled out this butcher knife and began to beat her. Like just, you know over and over and over again and he raped her and he beat her and he raped her and this went on throughout the night um and she was bound up she her arms were tied she wasn't able to you know uh, her mouth was uh gagged she wasn't able mm-hmm. to get free um and he ended up falling asleep and it's in this moment that she had made a decision that she was going to get out of there and that she was not going to die in this crazy man's home. And wow. so she looked at this window that was in his room. And when she looked over and she knew that he was asleep, when she like could tell herself that I am confident this man is not going to wake up, she got up, she rolled out of the bed, you know, kind of like in that way that you're like, you tried not to let the other person feel you getting up. Mm. And she quietly walks to this window. Now, remember her, her hands are bound. She does not have free hands. She, she, and she has a gag in her mouth, but she manages with her head and her mouth to like push up this windowsill. Now he's on this like second floor. So she, he's not like on 
the bottom level. You know, she he's on. So she's like walks out onto this balcony and she it just so happens that at the same time that she walks out on the balcony, there's these two women that are getting out of their car. And so, you know, again, she's gagged, right? So mm. she can't just like scream. And then also she has this sleeping crazy serial, you know, we know he's a serial killer, but right. crazy individuals sitting in here who just raped her and beat her. So she doesn't want to scream, but she needs to get their attention. And so she manages to like, mm, mm, you know, motion wow. and and they looked at her. And the first time she said that they looked at her, they just thought he, she was being funny. And so she managed to like show them, no, look, I, my hands are t- tied. Mm-hmm. So needless to say, they called the police, they called the ambulance and they were able to, you know, come and arrest him. And she was able to get away. Like, thank God. I mean, that is, wow. That just, that story within itself is just amazing that she was able to get away but I would say that it speaks to that if you see something, do something. You know what I mean? Like oftentimes Absolutely. we want to mind our business and I don't want to get involved in that. Then, you know, but we have to like if you see something, be aware of your surroundings because you could actually help someone, you know? Absolutely. These women saved her life. Wow. And granted, like she they thought initially that she was being silly and just, you know, they didn't think it was, they didn't understand when they recognized that, Oh no, this is serious. They jumped into action. And because of that, she walked away from this experience still having her life. Now, while she is traumatized and will have all of, you know, the, the pain and agony from that, that night, she at least has her life and she's forever grateful to those two women but he was arrested and he was charged. But, but Steph, mm-hmm. he was only sentenced to 15 years. No, what? Because he did not, he, he was arrested for kidnapping and rape because that's what he did. He kidnapped yes. her and he raped her. But he went to jail for attempted rape. How does that even happen though? Like, what? Right. So there are so many reasons why this happens, but he plead down. That's what, we, that, what they call it is, in legal terms is pleading down. And so what he was either, and I don't know, I don't have his case file, so I'm not able to like go into the details of like what could have possibly happened. And even if I had it, I wouldn't have all of the answers. But oftentimes, you know, prosecutors will either offer a lesser, uh, you know, lesser sentence or you may feel like you don't have the prosecution may feel like they don't have enough evidence or whatever. There's mm-hmm. so many different reasons why this could have happened, but he took a lesser, you know, included offense. And so because of that, he was only charged with 15 years. That plus the fact that it was probably his first fit like real true. Offense. Yeah. And so he goes to jail for 15 years. Wow. Well, yeah. So he re- is released in 2005. And at that point, he actually kind of, I don't want to say he, you know, is doing better. He's fully, re- you know, rehabilitated, but he gets a job working in a factory and he begins to, you know, do well for himself. And he does well for himself up until like 2007. Yeah. Because- you're right. 
yeah. Yeah, he begins to, he stops working. Do you remember why he stopped working at this factory? Yes. So, like, you know, you said that he did really well for himself. And I think Mm -hmm. that's because he, like, found that structure that Mm -hmm. he had in the military. That's that's how it was described in my research. But Okay. Um, that because he had that structure right but I think you know before we talk about like why he spiraled back into the crazed sadistic individual that we know he became Mm -hmm. Steph like tell us like when he was released what was his probation like okay so his probation when he was released is he had to register as a sex offender obviously and um he was subject to like police coming in like not actually coming into his home but you know doing these like stop and knocks basically where they would come and knock on his door um monthly or bi-monthly and they would just you know check up on him to see what he was doing how things were going with his job etc and that was the terms of his kind of release he had to register and they would do these random drop drop-ins monthly or bi-monthly so did the when he was released because you know like most sexual offenders they have to like um you know they're classified as like you know likely to offend unlikely to offend like what was he classified as he was classified as i guess the lowest tier i guess you would say like he, he basically would um he basically convinced the the whoever was uh, uh, in charge of classifying these sex offenders that he would not reoffend he was very unlikely to reoffend so they kind of you know took that into consideration that it was his first offense and you know he had served his time and they put him on the lowest tier so because you know he was also likely i mean i i can imagine that he was a model prisoner yeah you know because like right like in prison you have that same kind of structure yeah. that you have in the military. Like, you know, it's just like you have regimented everything. It's, time, it's like a certain time. Yeah. It's always that time. So I can imagine that whoever he had to convince um, that they were looking at like, wow, like he was such a great, you know, prisoner. Like, you know, and I say that with quotes. Like, he right. was such a great prisoner. But, you know, like he he, he did probably didn't have any troubles and they didn't have any issues with him. And then, you know, again, this goes back to this. He was a charmer and he was mm-hmm. the guy that you just felt like was good. Mm-hmm. And so he was able to convince them that I'm not going to reoffend. I'm not going to reoffend. And then you said you said that um, he actually did good for about two years, right? Yeah, he did. He was released in 2005, got a job working in a factory. Uh, like I said, was doing well for himself, had no complaints. He was a model employee as well. So then in 2007, it's when things took a turn for the left. Yeah. And based on the Oxygen Snap documentary, which I highly recommend you know, you guys go check out. It's called The Notorious or Notorious, the Cleveland Serial Killer. Mm -hmm. Um, He actually got into a relationship with a woman named Lori Frazier. And Lori Frazier is described in this this, uh, documentary as being the love of his life. Like, he was absolutely in love with this woman. She could do no wrong, even Mm -hmm. though 
she was kind of doing wrong (laughs) (laughs) because she was addicted to crack cocaine. And while, you know, this is not his first experience with drugs. Like he really wasn't on drugs at the time and he never dabbled into crack. I mean, crack is like a diff, you know, like smoking weed and like, yeah. you know, the, you know, doing some different, but crack is like a different level mm-hmm. of, you know, drugs that he had never really dabbled into, mm-hmm. but yet he was so in love with this woman. And so he went and not only did he have that one job that Steph was saying, you know, he was a model employee at, he actually went and got a second job for the sole purpose to like fund her habit. Wow. He just was so in love. I mean, he cooked her breakfast. He like, he gave her all of his money. Like he bought her, her drugs. And I mean, he just, he wanted to marry her, but in 2007, he ended up losing both of his jobs. And the documentary doesn't actually go into why, like if, if he was just like laid off, I'm, ex- I'm assuming that he was probably, just laid off because Mm -hmm. they say he was a model employee. So, you know, it doesn't appear to be because of some wrongdoing that he did, but he was unemployed. He, you know, lost his jobs and she subsequently broke up with him. Because like now he doesn't have the money flowing. It's like, (laughs) you can't fund this crackhead. Right. You can't fund this crackhead. But also I think she's, it does mention that she wanted to get her life together and she didn't feel like she could really get it with him. And, Mm -hmm. you know, honestly, I, you know, it appears that she was really using him. Yeah. You know, and he felt that when she, when she broke up with him, he felt all of that. And it really kind of, you know, goes back to that abuse that you talked about Steph in the very beginning that he got from his mother because it's almost like Lori breaking up with him triggered or just caused all those demons from his childhood to like rise up Mm -hmm. and his hatred for women just was exposed at that point and he just began to target and devour women yeah yeah, he definitely did. And that just brought out a really bad, something that was already in him, right? Because we know he raped someone before. So that that seed was already in him. It had manifested. And it just was was really, really bad after that. After they broke up in 2007, she actually moves out. And I want to say to you guys that Lori was actually the niece of the Cleveland mayor at the time. So, yes. I mean, I thought that was wild. That blew my mind when I saw that research in this case. I'm like, wow, that's crazy. I didn't know that. Yes, yes. I mean, it's just a fact, you know, kind of like a wild, crazy fact about this this case. But, yes, so to get back into the story, um, in 2007, she moves out, and then he begins to collect an unemployment check. And he also, like, earns extra money by selling scrap metal. And, um, you know, he just, he begins to, like, dabble in different things. I found out that he, I don't know if you knew this, MD, he was a member of an online dating service. He said he was looking, he was a master looking for a submissive. 
Oh, no, I did not know that. But that it's I mean, it's not surprising to hear knowing what I know about what he ended up doing. Right. And so he was living, he was living in like a three. And he was living in a like a, a. Would you say it's a crack infested or kind of like a a very rough part of a of a neighborhood in Cleveland, right? Yeah, I mean, I think that the um, well, one that the house that he was living in was his was his father's. He inherited okay. it from his father, um, so I think that's important to know, or you know, not important, but just like a little like interesting tidbit. Yeah, but I do uh, agree with you that it was a lot of cr- it was like kind of like a mini crack pandemic in this area because Mm -hmm. so many people were on drugs you know specifically you know crack and I know that one of the things that I loved about the oxygen documentary was that they really highlighted how crazy the neighborhood was in terms of like you had it wasn't it wasn't odd to have like you know women that were looking for drugs to just be randomly on the street um homelessness was Mm -hmm. there transient people were you know yeah so yeah this was not like your suburban neighborhood neighborhood. and and that's so important I'm so glad you mentioned that Steph because it's because of these little details that this like you know because when you try to figure out like how did this guy get away with this Hmm. and I think little details like that is how yeah yeah I mean because now I feel like I just did a case on TikTok um about LaQuanta um LaQuanta Riley and I think you know when black women go missing or just when black people in general let's be clear go missing (laughs) people you know the police police they don't pay attention they they're not in a they're not in a um, immediate response. They don't respond immediately. And that's so yeah. frustrating. And so when you see a story like Anthony's, you're like, how did this happen? But then it's like, it was in a rough part of the neighborhood. It was black woman. It was a black serial killer. Like, it's just like. Yeah, it's like, it's like these, okay, this yeah. is like the perfect storm for something like this to take, take place. Right. So like, these he like you know loses his girlfriend yes and then all of a sudden like women go missing right and what people notice in this neighborhood is that they they notice the smell like and everybody's trying to figure out what is going on like this is i mean and y'all it was not just the you know oh i left some old thanksgiving turkey in the you know in the refrigerator for too long wasn't a spoiling smell. I mean, this was a unforgettable stench. Like I think that his um his niece actually talked about how she, he would come over to her house mm-hmm. and she would know when he was in the room or like when he walked into the home because he brought the smell with him. Wow. You know, like you know, some people's homes just kind of have well, I think everybody's home has a distinct smell, right? Right. Like, and you know, but when you be, when you you live in that house and then you go somewhere else, you carry that, obviously absolutely carry smell with you, and you a smell that that is as strong as death. I've never smelled it, but every I mean, come on, we are, we are mm-hmm. all true crime fans here, so we have all heard the police officer or the detective or 
you know, whomever, whoever, talk about how they encountered this smell and it, they will never forget it as long as they live. Right. And so this was the, people couldn't, I mean, unless you know exactly what the smell is, like, you just know that it's foul. Like, and that's what people in the neighborhood was smelling. And as a matter of fact, um, Lori Frazier said that she smelled this smell as well. Like, I guess on the back end, right before they were about to break up, like, you know, around that time. And, you know, he attributed this smell to the sausage factory or was it a, was it a factory or a storefront that yeah, was, everything said sausage factory so yeah. I'm, I'm assuming yeah, I, I don't a, know what a sausage factory is right <laughs> don't have a clue um but yeah a sausage factory was right next door to his home so he just said oh it's just the sausage factory smell and I mean y'all the sausage factory actually like pulled out pipes trying to figure out what is this smell like what is going on that replaced piping they really tried to get to the you know bottom of what the smell was they never mm-hmm. did and so they kind of everybody just kind of chunked it up to it's the sausage factory and when you say everybody we're talking about the city we're talking about yes. <laughs> like people like the city employees actually came down to address the issue and was like you we need to figure this out like you guys need to figure out how you can get rid of this smell that is funking up the neighborhood. Right. We, are, we are having so many people call in about this smell. And like Steph said, like they literally began to like, they're thinking, okay, maybe it is us. Like, maybe you know, it's us. figure it out. <laughs> but, you know, I just, I don't know, because Steph talked about, I don't know if you guys remember, but she talked about how the police would have to come and do knocks, you know, like, you know, knock on his door and check check on them check and knocks and um or knocking checks whatever you yeah. call them you know what but anyway whatever it is and but I just I don't know it's almost like did the police really not smell the smell and not think that I can see a regular person who yes. has never smelled death just you know feel like oh my gosh this is just so foul and not necessarily attributed to death because why they've never smelled they don't know that they've smelled death like exactly but like a police officer doesn't know the smell of death all right okay and let's say not even all the police officers know the smell of death one somebody on that force somebody (laughs) somebody Somebody. and and then like i'm sorry i know we are like we will get off of this but i it just really (laughs) blows my mind because i'm just I'm trying to understand how this happened. What are the odds that a serial killer who is keeping bodies in his home is next to a sausage factory right. that he can blame it on? <laughs> like that within itself is just like, no, for real. Is this a joke? Like, like it's got to be a movie plot or something. Seriously, like it, like you, it's almost like I can't make this stuff up. Like this is real. This is so real. So yeah, okay. So we're gonna get off of it. So that that was there, and so this was going on. So all from two thousand, the end of two thousand seven to all the way throughout two thousand eight. You know, this smell was permeating from his house, and um, not only was he. Did, did you know? Because I want to. I want to. His stepmother was actually living in the house with him for a little while. Did you were you aware of that? 
I was. Okay. So his stepmother was living in the house. And so he, even when he was dating Lori, he would like blame the smell not only on the sausage factory, but on his stepmother. But eventually he could not, could no longer blame it on the stepmother of her ailing, you know, her failing health. She was moved to a nursing home. And so, you know, he could no longer blame it on her. So that to me, that was crazy that he was also blaming it on yeah, her. He's blaming everything, any and everything. And y'all, I mean, to give y'all kind of like a visual of this house, it was a three-story house. And it was like an apartment. Basically, uh, anybody could live on any of the three floors. And it kind of be like a mini apartment on each floor. Because there was a bathroom on every single floor. And you could just kind of do your own thing on every foot. So it was a big house. It was a very big house. And um, so we're just going to fast forward to September of 2009. And so actually LaTundra Well, before you but tell before, them about I know, LaTundra. I know. Yes, go ahead. Yeah, before you tell them about LaTundra, we have to tell them about Vanessa Gay. Yes, I totally because, forgot. Yeah, because Honestly, the reason, I mean, and I want to say this to you guys, because this could take, we could do probably five parts on this story, because Anthony killed 11, at, uh, that we know of, 11 People. women, yeah. but we chose to only highlight just a few, you know, because we thought that, you know, we don't want to like, just you know, go on and on. And, and there's so many wonderful stories already told on this case but I thought it was really important that we highlight this one particular woman because honestly had the police done right in this particular case I honestly believe that any and everybody after her would still be alive Mm -hmm. um Vanessa Gay actually met um met Anthony on a night that she, in September of 2008. So it's, it's, it's after he's already started killing and before, you know, before, a year until before he's actually, you know, caught. And she's actually sitting on the bus stop, sitting at a bus stop waiting to go home. She's finally deciding that, you know what, I'm going to go home. She hadn't been home in months because mm-hmm. she had been, you know, strung out on drugs and just homeless, you know, and, as she's waiting for this bus to take her home, here comes Anthony and he lures her back to his house, you know, saying that it's his birthday and I have drugs at the house and I have alcohol and we can just celebrate, celebrate me, you know, and my birthday. And, and I know so many of you guys are sitting over there rolling your eyes because you're like, who, who would go, who would do this? Who would Mm -hmm. actually follow him? But he prayed on the vulnerable. And I think that that is so important to understand. These are women that are at their lowest point and he knows that and he targeted them and he knew that she was a drug addict and Mm -hmm. he enticed her with the very thing that would get her to say yes. Well, when she gets back to the house, of course she smells the smell. Of course he blames it on the sausage factory and she believes him. But then he begins to beat her and rape her over and over and over and over again all night long. And she would not give him the satisfaction of screaming. Mm. She told herself that no matter what, he was going to do this. 
And she actually, it broke my heart because she actually stated that she felt like it was her fault that this was happening to her in the first place because she was a drug addict and because she had no business going back to his house. Wow. I really want to be clear here. I don't care if she said yes to going back. You do not ask to be raped. You do not ask to be beaten. And it was absolutely not her fault. But I digress. So she, um, go, he beats and rapes her all night long throughout the night. They wake up the next morning and she asks him, can I go to the bathroom? And when she goes to the bathroom, she sees in the room next to his, his bedroom, a dead body on the floor without a head. Wow. And something told her, and she, she attributed, attributes this voice to God, but she says that God told her to not make a scene, to not like get excited or whatever about this head, you know, that she just saw this dead, I mean, this headless body that she just yeah. saw. And so she just played it real cool. And because she played it real, real cool, she was able to convince Anthony to actually let her go. I mean, like he literally, Steph, walked her out the door. Wow. And once she gets out the door, she can barely walk, but she finds her way to a payphone, and she calls the police because why? That's what you do. That's what you do. You are in need for help. We are raised to know that the police are supposed to render aid and assistance and help in our times of crisis and need. And do you know what the police told her? Yeah, what? They said... You just need to come down to the the police station and file a report. I'm sorry, what? Yeah. She told these guys that she had been beat and raped all Mm. night long. And they merely said, come to the police station. Now, I'm sorry. I don't know if that, like, I, I, honestly, I tried to figure out, like, is this protocol? Like, is this Right, like, (laughs) right. But, you know, if you really just think about your own experiences and what you know, like if 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 you get in a car accident and you call the police, they come to you. They come to the scene. Absolutely. They come to the scene of the crime. So, like, if she's calling you, telling you that she was raped, hmm. you don't tell the rape victim to come to the station. <laughs> yes, that's absolutely you, ridiculous. I mean, she told you that she was able to, she just escaped. Like, it's, I mean... I wanted to highlight her story because one, she is an amazing woman for having the courage mm-hmm. to leave, to, 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 to not give up and to just continue to try everything she can. I mean, in the midst of that, I cannot say that I would be that calm. Yes. And I, I wanted to highlight it though also because if the police had simply gone to get her, mm. they would have, they would have captured him. Yes. Or investigated. Like, I'm like, even if you didn't capture, you would have to go in. I mean, it would eventually have led to his. You but but Steph, investigate. This is, this is, Steph, this is 2008. That's what makes it so bad. This is, 
Right. This is not 19. I mean, I mean, it's just not like the time when rape is still somewhat taboo and you don't really know if you believe a woman. And I mean, because that that is a part of the history of rape. This is 2008 where we are very clear that like rape is rape is rape is rape. And there Mm -hmm. are procedures for when women say they've been raped, whether you believe them or not, they get a rape kit. They get, you know, like there are certain things that are supposed to be in place for them. And yet and so at the very minimum because he was on probation and he had an alleged rape victim they would have absolutely searched his house oh absolutely and if they had searched his house they would have found the bodies yeah I mean and that's just I mean it just makes you feel like as a minority it's like and this is why we don't trust y'all you know what and, I mean? And this is it, why we don't always it, come forward. Exactly. When we that's do, exactly what she said. She said, I, she hung the phone up and said, I don't trust the police. I, I feel like if I go down there, they're just going to be like, she's another drug addict. Hmm. That is just so, that's just so incredibly sad, like on so many different levels. And I want to say that I, all police are not like that. And I, you know, we are not a podcast, you know, that is going to bash the police and like all police are horrible and that's not who we are. Um, I do know that there are good police officers out there, but this system is not built for us. Mm -hmm. And because of that, it's like we are already at a disadvantage. And just to see that like, because they did not respond, not only were there, because there were five bodies before or at this at this point, there was only five bodies. But mm-hmm. because they didn't respond, there were six more bodies. So they are just as culpable. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Which is, that's just so, that's just so incredibly sad. It is. But I, you know, we have some more to say, but I don't know. You know, MD, I feel like we should give it to them next week. What are, what are you feeling? What are you thinking? Mm. Yeah, let's give you part two. Yeah, there's a part two and we will wrap this up. But we want to make sure that we want to like do our due diligence to this case, like and give y'all the the most out of it so that you can know what happened in full detail without feeling like we left out some parts and missing pieces. So why don't you go ahead and highlight that um, documentary you watched md and then i'll tell them the one i watched a couple of years back on prime video yes definitely go check out oxygen's snapped notorious the cleveland strangler and you can actually watch them on you can actually watch it for free if you download the oxygen app so go do it yeah That's a good tidbit because, listen, I mean, I feel like I got all the streaming services, so anything free. (laughs) Anything free is worth the time. So, yeah, definitely. It's about an hour and a half, but it is well worth it. Yeah, yeah. And so I also watched uh, a documentary. It's called The Unseen, and it is on Prime Video. So a lot of us have Prime, and if you have prime on amazon and you get everything in one day then you automatically have prime video so <laughs> go check that and who doesn't have prime, prime i mean prime. i'm just saying you know did you get that on amazon yes <laughs> yes i got it everything <laughs> my life is on amazon yes. yes so thank you guys so much for for tuning in 
definitely share our podcast with everyone. We're on Apple Podcasts. We're on Spotify. We're on Anchor. We're trying to get on all the platforms. There's so many different platforms, if you didn't know, MD. Like, I know we listen to everything on Apple, but it's a ton. But we also ask that not only do you listen to us, but that you share. Share it with your friends. We all know somebody that loves true crime. So we ask that you share our podcast with those of our, you know, crime junkie, true podcast, true crime podcast loving people. So we will see you guys next week for part two of the Anthony Soul case. All right. Till next time. Bye.